Even though Absalom's rebellion has been squashed, reconciliation has begun, there's still tension between the tribes. This is the 42nd sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 19 as we continue in that chapter beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. 2 Samuel 19, 24 through 43. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. And it came to pass, when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore wentest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass, that I may ride thereon, and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou... And Ziba divide the land. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all, forasmuch as my lord the king is come again in peace unto his own house. And Brazilii the Gideonite came down from Roglim and went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over Jordan. Now Brazilii was a very aged man, even fourscore years old, and he had provided the king of sustenance while he lay at Menahemon, for he was a very great man. And the king said unto Brazilii, Come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. And Brazilii said unto the king, How long have I to live, that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old, and can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Wherefore then should thy servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king, and why should the king recompense it me with such a reward? Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I might die in mine own city and be buried by the grave of my father and my mother. But behold, thy servant Shehem, let him go over with my lord the king, and do to him what shall seem good unto thee. And the king answered, Shehem shall go over with me, and I will do to him that which shall seem good unto thee, and whatsoever thou shalt require of me, that will I do for thee. And all the people went over Jordan, and when the king was come over, the king kissed Brazilii and blessed him, and he returned unto his own place. Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Shehem went on with him. And all the people of Judah conducted the king and also half the people of Israel. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said unto the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen thee away and have brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over Jordan? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is near of kin to us. 
Wherefore, then, be ye angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all of the king's cost? Or hath he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king, and we have also more right in David than ye. Why then did ye despise us, that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king? And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 10. For the same spirit, the apostle writes, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye yet not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now at this point, David is seeking to unite the tribes together after Absalom's death and the defeat of his army. Seeing the inevitability of David's reascension to the throne, Shimei and Ziba seek reconciliation. So seeing the inevitability of David's reascension to the throne, Shimei and Ziba, both men deceitful and covetous and counterfeits, they both seek reconciliation to the king. And we read this in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 19. And as we saw last time, Shimei and Ziba both want to get back into the good graces of the king. Now, once David initially pardons Shimei, I remember what Shimei was saying. He was saying, I did this, I cursed you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, it was a, it was a mistake, please forgive me. And he says in verse 20, For thy servant doth know that I have sinned, therefore behold, I am come the first. I'm the first one to come to ask for forgiveness, to reconciliation with you. And of course, this is what I'd like from the king. So once David initially pardons Shimei, whether or not he believes Shimei or not, but he does initially pardon him. Then Mephibosheth ventures to meet the king as well. Now, if you remember that by this time, David was already under the impression that Mephibosheth may have wanted to take the kingdom from David as a result of Zibia's false accusation. You see, Zibia had a motivation to besmirch Mephibosheth in order to gain his inheritance. 
So he too was trying to deceive for his own covetous ends. However, Mephibosheth had no such intentions about coming against the king. He loved the king, and of course, he tells the king this in verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Now notice what's going on here. He comes to meet the king, and he had neither dressed his feet, this is verse 24, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed into his exile until the day he came again back from his exile in peace. Now, once Mephibosheth appears before David, he is a physical mess. The man is a mess, a total mess. He is the quintessential picture of total humiliation. And he comes not to David as a man, and you would think if, if Ziba was true and right in the fact that Mephibosheth is going to muster an army, he's not coming to David as a man who could muster any kind of an army. He is coming to David without any kind of power or wherewithal to challenge the kingdom, but seems to be now in mourning over the affairs of the kingdom that Absalom had put David through. Now, if you remember, David had shown Mephibosheth in the most incredible kindness ever because of Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. So even though at the outset it would seem that Mephibosheth is generally humbled and visibly distressed in support of David, David is not immediately fully convinced. Perhaps knowing his history, perhaps knowing his own history, perhaps he was aware of how the Gibeonites had tried to fool Joshua when they came to him looking disheveled and broken while they were in fact trying to manipulate him. So immediately David is suspicious of false humility. We read of this account of the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, 3 and following. Notice, And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wily, very, very subtly, and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up and old shoes and cloth upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. They are the picture of humility and humbleness and they go to Joshua and to the camp at Gilgal and they say to him and the men of Israel, we become from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. So you see, they're trying to show that they're, they're all disheveled and they're sort of like what Mephibosheth is doing. But Mephibosheth is actually disheveled. Mephibosheth is actually humbled. He's actually distraught, unlike the men of Gibeon. Now there's a lesson for us here, actually, to be sure. We should never be convinced merely by an outward show of remorse or humility but we must wait to see the long-lasting fruit of true repentance and humiliation. Just because someone says, oh, my pride is broken, oh, I'm so humbled now, it doesn't mean a thing. Verbal confessions alone do not make an individual humbled or repentant. And David knew that from his own experience, especially his experience with Saul. If you remember Saul, says, oh, my son David, I've sinned, I've sinned, and then he wants to kill him. 
So he understood that from his own experience with Saul and from history itself. David might have initially thought that Mephibosheth was playing David to make an alliance with him or not to get slaughtered by him, such as what Shimei and Ziba were doing. And perhaps maybe Mephibosheth even wanted David to restore him his own inheritance that David originally promised. And so David, of course, suspicious, he asks him a question, a very simple question. If you are so truthful in your testimony, why didn't you confederate me at the outset of the rebellion? What, what, what took you so long? That's a fair question. And it came to pass, when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to Mephibosheth, Wherefore wentest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? Now note Mephibosheth's reply. First, he plainly tells David that he was lied to. But he doesn't say this as an excuse. He's not trying to make an excuse. He's not even trying to blame another or place blame on anyone else. But as a matter of fact and a matter of record, he is saying, I was lied to. Verse 26, and he answered, My Lord, O King, my servant Ziva, that is, my servant deceived me. I was literally, actually, honestly Deceived. Secondly, he then adds the details of the deception. For your servant said to him, to Ziba, this is what I said, O king, this is what I said. Ziba, saddle me an ass, get me a donkey. I need transportation so I may ride and go with the king in his exile because I can't walk. I'm lame. I need the donkey. So Mephibosheth tells David that his initial intention was to go with him in exile with David to share in his humiliation and to support him in the rebellion. But instead of saddling an ass for Mephibosheth, Ziba goes to David to slander Mephibosheth, telling him that, oh, he doesn't want to go with you. He's siding with Absalom and even hoping someday to take the kingdom back for the house of Saul. So Ziba's testimony was all a lie, it was all untrue, it was all deception. Hearing that, Ziba had slandered him by making him a suspected rebel in the eyes of the king. Mephibosheth dares not go to the king, thinking that if he shows up before the king, because the king was believing Ziba, he would act rashly against Mephibosheth. So he was frightened. Now there are a number of lessons to be learned here and issues to be fleshed out. David, firstly, failed once again by listening to a report without validating it. He listened to Ziba. He said, oh, Ziba must be right. Ziba must be true. Mephibosheth must be contemplating a rebellion. He did this once before with the report that all the king's sons were killed by Absalom and took that report as fact instead of inquiring of its truthfulness. In this case, he takes the word of a man of questionable ethics as true and decides that Mephibosheth has confederated with the enemy. Solomon, perhaps, David's son, recognizing some of his faults of his father, says this in Proverbs 18, 17. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searches him out. David failed to search out Ziba's report for himself. And so he made a rash decision. Oh, he must be against me also because everyone else is. Secondly, Mephibosheth's reluctance to go to David in order to vindicate himself is also very telling. Apparently, Mephibosheth feared that the king would take Ziba's word as truth since he was under so much stress. David certainly, as you remember, was so so stressed out 
that he thought maybe everybody was after him. Or perhaps, or perhaps Mephibosheth knew that David's skills of judging were severely compromised. And, and of course, David showed that, that his skills of judging were severely compromised, and maybe he wouldn't have acted properly. Third point, Mephibosheth then switches gears and moves from setting forth the facts, defending himself, to doing the only thing that was left. He casts himself on the mercy of the king. He addresses, and notice how he addresses David. He addresses David as God's messenger. But my lord the king as an, is as an angel of God. He is as a messenger of God. This was the same response. If you remember, this was the same response of the woman that Joab persuaded to deceive David. And when she realized that she had angered the king, she used the same language to show that she actually reverenced the king and trusted that his counsel was right. So here you have Mephibosheth, where David thought he was a rebel. He's saying, look, I was deceived, but the bottom line is, I am at your mercy. He throws himself on the mercy of the king using the same phrase that I will go according to whatever you decide because you are as an angel of God. You are a messenger of the Most High. He is telling David that he understands David to be a man of God and that God has blessed him as his emissary and he would abide by whatever David said. So David was both the king and the messenger of God in the same way that Christ is both the king and the messenger of God or as some Bible translations put it, the angel of the Lord. Now finally, Mephibosheth, of course, having no other recourse, places all his hope in David's mercy. And he says, Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. These are the words of a man who's trusting David to do the right thing. Even though David might have thought initially that Mephibosheth was in rebellion against him, he is still trusting him. Here's a man who knows that David at any moment could slaughter him, kill him, execute him. He is going to trust the king because he understands the king will do that which is right. And here is where we have the gospel. It is the Christ of God who is the messenger of God in whom we have to deal with. And if not for his mercy if we have not thrown ourselves on His mercy, making no excuses, but throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, we would perish. And yet, Mephibosheth understood that if David did not show him mercy, he would perish. And yet, he still beseeches him for mercy as we beseech God for His mercy. You see, as Christians, when we finally come before the throne of the Most High God, we come before God as Mephibosheth, humbled, humiliated, disheveled in our appearance and spiritually unkept by sin in order to seek the mercy of God even though we stink from sin. We stink from wretchedness, iniquity and rebellion. And yet we throw ourselves on the mercy of God in order to seek the mercy of God in our abject depravity and inability to do anything meriting good whatsoever. We are at the mercy of God, even as Mephibosheth at this point is at the mercy of King David. But note the next confession of humble Mephibosheth. And you've got, you've got to love the man. Verse 28, For all of my father's house, notice this confession, were but dead men before my lord the king, and yet this thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. 
You chose me out of all of those others. You think about that. Now, a lot of you young children, you're, you're born into covenant homes. I was not. And I look back at my ancestry and I realize my ancestry, out of all of that, I was chosen. Mephibosheth is saying, they were all dead men, but you chose me. You chose me not only as your servant, but I am eating at your own table as one of the king's sons. And knowing this and recognizing this, he says, what right therefore have I yet to cry anymore to the king? I have I have no recourse with you. I can't ask you for anything else. You didn't destroy me. That's enough. So what we have here, beloved, is a testimony that while all of Mephibosheth's lineage is dead, Mephibosheth is not only alive, but he's bidden to the king's table as one of his own. To be at the king's table was enough. In other words, he's content. He's content. Mephibosheth is a recipient of David's electing mercy and grace in the same way that the people of God, each and every one of you who are truly God's people, are recipients of Christ's saving mercy and electing grace. What more do we need? And yet, what do we say? We want more. We want this. We want that. We want the other thing. His last comment is especially telling of his character. What right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more unto the king? You see, we're living in a world of my rights. It's my right. You know, as Christians, we play the same game. We think that we have a right for health. It's our right to be healthy. It's our right to be prosperous. It's our right to be this. It's our right. We have no right. Mephibosheth is saying, I am content with being the king's son. I am content with sitting at the king's table. I have no right to even ask for mercy, and yet I've been given mercy. This testifies of true humility. And the astute understanding of who David is, David is not required to show anyone mercy, and yet he does in the same way that God is not required to show anyone mercy, and yet he does. He wasn't required to save you. He wasn't required to save me. No one has the right to expect God to show mercy or to give a gift or a grace here or a grace there. No one has that right. Mephibosheth understands that. We need to understand that as well. And yet, it just so happened on this day where David would show mercy even to deceitful Ziba. None of us should ever think that God was obliged to show any of us. And yet he does. But not because he required to do so. David wasn't required to show mercy. He chose to show mercy. And that should be both a comfort for us as well as it should be something that astounds us. Just think about that, just for a minute. The fact, if it is true, that you are a child of God, if it is true that you are actually an elect of God, it should astound you. David's response restores Mephibosheth's inheritance 
as a token of his extended mercy and tells him to divide the land between he and Ziba. Notice verse 29. And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. You can have equal portions. I already promised it to Ziba, and now I'm going to give it back to you, so just split it. Now, now you, you would think you would think that Mephibosheth says, wow, what a great deal. I'm back in the king's graces. I have the king's mercy and I'm getting half of my, I'm getting the inheritance back. Not all of it, but half of it. And, and that's a good thing. You'd think that that'd be, we, we'd be happy. Not for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's response is incredibly telling. He says that he doesn't want anything to do with the land. He doesn't want anything to do with the inheritance because having been embraced once again by the king in a peaceful reconciliation was all that was really important to him besides the fact that David was restored to the kingdom. And then again, Mephibosheth is content with nothing more than to be the king's son. Nothing more than to, than to be able to sit in the court of the king once again. So he refuses because he's concerned. He's concerned with the king's glory. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let Ziba take it all. I don't even want it. For as much as my lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house, I'm just thankful. I am glorying in the, the fact that David is receiving the glory due his name. Are we glorying in the fact that Christ is glorified? Is that enough for us or do we need more? You see, that's what pe- kind of people we are in a first world country. We want more, 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 and we think it's our right. So now that David is prepared to return to the city, old man Brazilii, the Gideonite, arrives to assist David who needs to cross over the Jordan in order to return to Jerusalem. Now this is the same man, if you remember, this is the same man that assisted David at a very critical moment during his exile with provisions while he was on the run from Absalom. And we read this in verse 32 of chapter 19. Now Brazilii was a very aged man, even fourscore years old, and he had provided the king's sustenance while he lay at Menaim, for he was a very great man. This was recorded in detail in 2 Samuel 17 when Brazilii brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and parched corn. You think about how much money he had to shell out. He was a very wealthy man, a very great man, not only in age, but in prosperity and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese. And the people, because they were so hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness, they were refreshed to the point where they were able to muster energy enough to defeat the rebels of Absalom. Now, obviously, from David's response to this man, David was very fond of him. And so he bids him to join him in the city. Come with me to Jerusalem. I will receive my kingdom once again. I will be glorified once again. The land will be unified. The tribe will be unified. The city will be at peace. Come and share this, this incredible glory with me. And so he bids him to join him in the city. But he offers more than just communion. Notice, he says that he would feed the man, implying that Brazilii would also, with Mephibosheth, sit at the king's table. And the king said, verse 33, And the king said unto Brazilii, Come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. Any of us would have said, wow, good deal. I'm elderly, I'm infirmed, 
I am going to go and be cared for by the king. But the man refuses. Note his reasoning. And Brazilii said unto the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old, and can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the singing of men and women? In other words, he's got some health issues. You would think if if an old man had some health issues, he'd want to go where he could be cared for. He said, no, 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 I, I can't enjoy what you're telling me I can enjoy. Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with you, but I am not going to take that reward. Why should you give me that reward, such a reward as this? In other words, he's saying, rather, let thy servant, verse 37, let thy servant, I pray, turn back again, that I may die in my own city and be buried by the grave of my father and of my mother. Now here's a man who understands the reality of life. He understands the reality of the situation. He understands the reality of the time that he has left. Obviously, he didn't think he had long to live. How long have I to live? Maybe he was sickly. Maybe he knew it. He's also a man concerned about someone other than himself, that David would have to care for him since he is so infirm and along in years. Wherefore then should thy servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? Who would do that? Really, who would do that? You're ill, you've got the best medical attention in the king's court, and you say, no, no, I'm not going to be a burden to you. Here's a man of deep, deep humility. A man who knows his place before the grandeur of the king. Why should the king recompense at me with such a reward? I am a nobody. His reasoning also speaks of his faith. He's not afraid to die. I don't have long to live. Why am I going to be a burden to you? I just want to be buried with mommy and daddy. He seems, in fact, to embrace the fact that his time is near. Here is a man of faith. He is embracing the fact that it's very close. But there's something very unique about this man. He's a future thinker. He asked David to take his servant to replace him in the king's house. Notice what he says. But behold, thy servant, Chiham, let him go over with my lord the king and do to him what thou shalt seem good unto thee. In other words, do to him what you are going to do for me. Put him in the place of a sonship. Now you think, well, that's very kind. Uh, He's saying, let my servant go over and in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, we learn that this servant is most likely his son. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, David instructs Solomon to show kindness to Barzillai's son, implying that he would show kindness to his grandchildren as well. And we read this in 1 Kings 2, 7, but show kindness unto the sons of Basilia the Gideonite, and let them be of those that eat at thy table, for so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom thy brother. So here you have an old man who's a future thinker. He's going to give it over to his sons. And he's going to know that his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons and his great-great-grandsons will continue in that humility and in that service to the king. David obviously was agreeable in having Brazilian's son as a token of his love for the aged man. This man was a future thinker. 
He wasn't building for today. And he wasn't building for himself. He was investing in his future. Even though he would never see the result of that future, he was investing in his sons and his sons. He was laying up. What did the Apostle Paul say? The parents are to lay up for the children, not the children for the parents. A great man. A wise man. And upon hearing this request, David agrees, kisses Brasilii, blesses him, sends him home, and proceeds to cross over the Jordan on his way to reclaim his rightful place in the city of peace with Chiam. And we read this in verses 38 and 39. Now, at this point, all might have seemed well. And now it seemed as if they could look for a total reconciliation, that it might be at hand. The tribe of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Judah would come together and everything would be good. Everything would be great. There'd be a kumbaya moment and they would embrace as brothers. But there was still too much tension between the two tribes. Absalom had Israel as his followers, while David had Judah as his followers. Now, verse 40 tells us that only half of the people of Israel were with David as he proceeded to go to Jerusalem. We read this in verse 40. Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chiam went on with him, and all the people of Judah conducted the king, and also half the people of Israel. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren... The men of Judah, why have the men of Judah stolen thee away and have brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over Jordan? In other words, why weren't we invited? Why weren't we invited to the ceremony? Why weren't we, why weren't we looked at as the ones to bring him over? All of a sudden you have tension. We want to be in the limelight. Matthew Henry explains, he says, quote, David came over Jordan attended and assisted only by the men of Judah. But when he had advanced as far as Gilgal, the first stage on his side, Jordan, half the people of Israel, that is probably of their elders and great men, had come to wait upon him to kiss his hand and congratulate him on his return, but found they came too late to witness the solemnity of his first entrance. This put them out of humor and occasioned a quarrel between them and the men of Judah. We wanted to be the first to congratulate David. Why are the men of Judah congratulating David? And note the response of the men of Judah. And notice the pettiness. The pettiness of Israel's quarrel. You would think, this is a great moment. We're going to get together as a nation once again. But no, 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 no. We want to be honored more than them. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is near of kin to us. He's from the tribe of Judah. You're not. Wherefore then be ye angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all of the king's cost or have he given us any gift? He didn't bribe us to this. We're more, we're closer to him. We're, we're better friends. We're, we're, what is it called? Uh, be, be what, what best of friends, B-O-F, whatever. We're his best buddies. You're not his best buddies. So first, the men of Judah pointed their relation to the king. Second, they denied that they had any intention to slight the men of Israel, to take advantage of the king's favors. Israel wanted to be considered in this situation, and they were not. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, 
We have, notice the pettiness. We have ten parts in the king. We have ten tribes, you only have two. We have ten parts in the king. And we have also more right in David than ye, because we have ten tribes and you only have two. Why then did ye despise us as if they really did despise them. They didn't really despise him. It was in the fanfare that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king. Why didn't you ask for our advice? First of all, that's insane because they were the ones in rebellion with Absalom against David and we're going to ask for your advice? This is a little bit petty now. And so they take offense, rekindling the tension between the tribes once again. And this is so ironic First, Israel conspires with Absalom and strives against the king. Now they're striving about the king. They wanted to be considered as to the ceremonial restoration celebration. In other words, they're arguing which group can honor him the most. We can have a better party. We can make a better celebration than you can. And this is so juvenile. It's so petty and carnal, which shows the instability of the men of Israel who are willing to cause strife for their own glory. And any time, mark my words, any time you have pettiness and someone that desires the limelight, you have carnality. You have evil and sinful intentions. Matthew Henry adds this. He says, quote, See what is commonly the origin of strife, nothing so much as impatience of contempt or of the last seeming light. Perhaps the men of Judah would have done better if they had taken their brethren's advice and assistance. But, since they did not, why should the men of Israel be so grievously offended? If a good work be done and well done, let us not be displeased, nor the work disparaged, though we had no hand in it. End quote. Just because someone else is prospering doesn't mean we or anyone should disparage it even though we had no part in it. We should be encouraging it, even though we had no part in it. That was Israel's problem. And so what we have before us are two factions that are in strife with one another that should be on the same side for a common kingdom advancement cause, and yet they're debating over nothing. Which of them is due more honor because of their affiliation with the king? Now this debate was an expression of their carnality in the same way as it was an expression of carnality within the church of Corinth. Now consider the similarities between the two situations. First, Israel and Judah were arguing over who had closer ties to a notable individual, particularly in this case it was David, the king. These were looking to honor themselves by their affiliation with another man. Repeat that. They were looking to honor themselves by their affiliation with another The Corinthians were arguing over the same thing. They were debating over who had closer ties to certain famous and notable men as well. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 and following. Notice what Paul is telling them. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, so that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it had been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? 
You see, Paul is concerned about the divisions that would ultimately lead to a total unraveling of the work of the kingdom's advancement. Secondly, the church at Corinth existed at the very beginning of the New Testament age. They were already fighting. They weren't even at an even at an early stage. They weren't even an entity yet, in the same way as Israel and Judah were not much of a cohesive entity since the rebellion of Absalom. And there was a definite division between them. They were once again at ground zero, and here they are debating on who should be giving more honor and who's the closest to the king. The Corinthian situation was so desperate that Paul had to address it further in his third chapter. And it is at this time that he indicts them for the root cause of their divisions, carnality. Notice, chapter 3, verse 1 from our New Testament reading. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas... There is among you envies and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am a Paul, and another, I am a Paulus, are ye not yet carnal? Who then is Paul, who is a Paulus, but ministers by whom ye believed? So these divisions, these envies and strifes, they're all coming from carnality. Paul continues, he says, We are all laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which given is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Now note that line. Let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. In other words, you cannot build your religion, your faith, your, your, your hope on anything other than Christ. You can't build it on a man. You can't build it on Apollos, upon Paul, upon Cephas, upon anyone but Christ. Furthermore, you cannot boast of any affiliation with any entity to make yourself look better or more knowledgeable or more prestigious or anything else. Because in our modern day, we hear all kinds of things like this, all kinds of boastings, most like, what has happened at Corinth and what had happened in Israel and Judah. For instance, I attend this seminary. I attended that seminary. Oh, that seminary is no good. Well, there are some that are no good. But anyway, I attended this one or that one. I read this author or that author. I was tutored by this professor or that professor. I go to this church or that church. I was involved in this ministry or that ministry and I'm comparing myself by compare myself with other people rather than comparing myself before God. These are all things that we have to do away with. This is nothing more than Corinthian boasting and it is prideful carnality at the core. And yet, what do we hear today? Divisions. Divisions, divisions, divisions. Well, Christianity is on the verge of a period of darkness like never seen before in the United States of America since its inception. Christians are arguing over which author, which church, which seminary or ministry they are affiliated with. I submit to you this, that this kind of disunity will be the death of Christianity. But Paul had better hope for the church. Paul's hope for the unification of the saints would, would take precedence over their schismatic pride. And so he writes to the church at Ephesus and he says in chapter 4, verse 11 and following, And he, Christ, gave some apostles and some prophets 
and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, because every joint is important, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, make it increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Without a complete and total unification of the faithful, there can be no kingdom advancement. Of course, Israel's carnal accusations did not sit well with the men of Judah, and they made it known by answering them roughly, which exacerbated the tension further. Not a good way to reestablish David's reign. And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now one would think that after the rebellion of Absalom was put down and David was considered the rightful king, all would be well. The fact of the matter is, because of their divisions, because of their contentions and their strife, a vacuum was created, which would lead for the possibility of another rebellion. And at this point, God is certainly not finished with David's chastisement. There would be further strife between the tribes, perpetuated by one rebellious individual who stood in that vacuum in order to bring, once again, a difficult scenario in the life of our beloved King David. We will consider that next when we return to our exposition of the book of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.